The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. So if you haven't already, I do invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4, Shades Valley, Christ is risen. I, I cannot tell you how good it is to hear your voices. Last year, we were live streaming Easter in an empty room. Like I was saying, Christ is risen and there was, there was nothing. But today we're not in an empty room. Today we get to gather in order to celebrate the fact that we have an empty tomb. So one more time, one more time, Shades Valley, Christ is risen. This, this is my favorite holy day, or it's more commonly said, it's my favorite holiday. And today it reminds me of one of my favorite holiday movies, A Christmas Story. Yes, I'm going to talk about A Christmas Story on Easter. Just embrace the irony, people. Right? But that movie comes to mind today because of one of my favorite scenes. It's, it's when the main character, Ralphie, and his younger brother, Randy, get to meet Santa. They, they like are in a department store. They wait in line forever as they make their way up these stairs to go up to this massive, like, almost throne in order to meet Santa. And when it's their turn, they finally get to draw near. And, and they should feel joy, but instead they are filled with fear and frustration. Like Randy's placed on Santa's lap and he just starts freaking out. He starts screaming, fear. Ralphie, he, he finally gets his turn and he asks Santa for the present that he has been obsessing over for the entire movie, an official Red Rider carbine action 200 shot range model air rifle. And Santa replies in the exact same way that every other adult in the movie has replied. Shoot your eye out, kid. And literally, literally with his boot, Santa puts his boot on Ralphie's head and pushes him down a slide that serves as an exit. It's, it's almost like a rejection chute. And like when, when Ralphie reaches the bottom, he just has this look on his face of complete exasperation, total frustration. Randy and Ralphie, fear and frustration. This is what makes me think of that movie this morning because I am willing to bet that there are many of us here who are feeling exactly those things. Fear and frustration. Like for many of us, it feels like we have been waiting in line forever to gather as a whole community to worship the risen Christ. And now that we finally get to draw near to the empty tomb, we know we should feel joy, but instead we are filled with fear and frustration. Frustration. I mean, it's been a year, has it not? Where has Jesus been? As we've cried and prayed over a pandemic, where has Jesus been? As we have lamented injustice, racism, and hate, what has Jesus done? As we've seen professing Christians worship politicians as their king instead of Christ and claim that this country is the kingdom of God. Are we not left asking, will Jesus do anything to help with any of this? Because if I'm honest, if we're honest, it feels like Jesus has given us the boot recently. He's totally rejected, leaving me 
feeling frustrated, and if I'm honest, I'm ready to give up. Perhaps you feel that way, you're ready to give up, or perhaps you already have. Perhaps you're here thinking, I've, I've already given up, Jonathan, and that's why the empty tomb doesn't make me feel joy, but it fills me with fear. I'm too far gone. I've, I've already given up on this whole Jesus thing. If I'm honest, I'm just here on Easter out of just sheer routine. I mean, you might say, Jonathan, trust me after the things that I have felt, said, posted this past year. I, I'm just not, I, I'm, I'm not just asking, will Jesus do anything to help? I'm asking, can he do anything to help? And I fear that the answer is no. Shades Valley, this morning, the empty tomb that should make us feel joy, I think for many, is filling us with fear and frustration, begging the questions, can Jesus do anything to help? And will he do anything to help? Shades, shades, draw near with me no matter what you feel this morning i plead with you to draw near with me and see if the empty tomb isn't filled with the answers to these questions does this do anything to help will he do anything to help and the best place the perfect place for us to draw near to the empty tomb this morning is the book of hebrews because hebrews was written to christians who'd been enduring for a long time and they were ready to give up. Can you relate? In fact, some of these Christians already had given up. And thus they're left asking the same thing as us. Can Jesus do anything to help? We're already too far gone. We've sinned. We've turned our back on Jesus. We've said, felt, and done things that he couldn't possibly forgive. Is there anything Jesus can do to help? The author of Hebrews answers this first question in Hebrews 4 and verse 14. Read it with me. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. Can Jesus do anything to help? Our author emphatically declares, yes. He's the only one who can. Because he is the only one with the power to help. That's what the author is showing us. That's what he means when he calls Jesus our great high priest. That's Old Testament language. In the Old Testament, the high priest uh, was provided by God in order to be a mediator for the people, a go-between God and the people. The high priest was given the power to help the people draw near to God. Because the high priest was the only one. He was the only one who could do this because he was the only one who could go into the most holy place in the temple. The holy of holies where the literal presence of God dwelt. Where it was like God's throne touched down on earth. In fact, the Ark of the Covenant that was in the holy of holies was sometimes called the footstool. The footstool of God's throne. And once a year, the high priest would go into this place carrying with him the blood of a sacrifice in order to atone for the people's sin so that they could draw near to God. In order to draw near to God, their sin has to be atoned for because sin separates us from God. It does this naturally. Sin, sin is rejecting God as God. Of course it separates you from him. It's a rejection of him. 
Sin is a rejection of God as God and substituting myself for him in his place. In other words, sin is rejecting God in order to be my own God, my own king in charge of my own life. All of us do this naturally. We're born this way. And here's the deal, Shades. If you reject the God who created life, the God who sustains life, there's nowhere left to turn but death. Logically, naturally, you reject the God who makes life, sustains it. There is nowhere left to go but death. Sin naturally brings death. But not just that. Death is not just what sin naturally brings. Death is what sin rightly deserves. Because sin breaks God's good world. God created this world good. In other words, he created this world as a place for us to know him and enjoy him. There's nothing better he could give us to know and enjoy. There's no other better definition of good. He created this place for us to know him and enjoy him. He is, by definition, the greatest thing in the universe. The best thing. And your heart was designed to be satisfied with nothing less than the best. And the best is himself. That is how much God loves you. He will not settle for giving you anything less than the best. And the best is himself. He created you. All of us feel this with a desire. He created you with a desire that cannot be satisfied by anything but him. Every desire, think of it this way. Every desire that you experience in this life is designed to be satisfied by something. Thirst has a satisfaction. It's designed to be satisfied by drink. Hunger has a satisfaction. It's designed to be satisfied by food. Fantastic literature is designed to be satisfied by Lord of the Rings. Every single desire you have has a corresponding satisfaction. So if I find inside myself a deep desire and longing that nothing, no matter what I try in this world, nothing can satisfy it. What does that mean? This is one of the things that drew the avowed atheist C.S. Lewis to Christ. Lewis said, if I find in myself a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, I must conclude I was made for another world. Every desire I have has a corresponding satisfaction. If there's a desire, nothing can satisfy. I had to be made for something else, another world, the world which God created in which everything would know him and enjoy him perfectly. Sin is a rejection that it breaks God's good world. Therefore, it is right. It is actually loving for God to remove sin from his world and restore his creation. I I do this in my children's lives. I remove things from their lives that I think could be harmful to them. Bad influences, violence, drugs, Barney the Purple Dinosaur. Anything that I think could harm them, I remove from their life. It is loving to do so. God loves his good creation. And he removes anything that harms it, including sin. And we call that removal death. Death is what sin naturally brings. And it is what sin rightly deserves. But that is a glorious gospel conjunction, Shades. But God, who is rich 
in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us. God did something. Even though sin naturally brings death, deserves death, God didn't dole out death. He did something. Even when we sinned by substituting ourselves for him, what did God do? He provided a substitute for us. Each year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies with the blood of a substitute sacrifice. An innocent animal who bore the just punishment of our sin in our place. And the priest would take that blood and he would sprinkle it atop the Ark of the Covenant, the footstool of God's throne, transforming what should have been a place of judgment into a place of grace. Literally, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant was called the mercy seat, not the judgment seat, because it's the place where atonement for sin was made but only temporarily. Only temporarily. No, no animal sacrifice could ever truly substitute for us. We, humankind, are the ones who sin. We are the ones who deserved the punishment. No, no animal could ever be our accurate substitute or representative. And no human priest could ever actually save us from our sins, no matter what sacrifice they gave, because that priest was sinful himself. He needed to be saved. He could not serve as a savior. What we need, Shades, is a great high priest. We need a high priest. Someone who is truly human, who can truly represent us. But we don't just need a high priest. We need a great one. Great because he is God. God who is sinless so that he doesn't need to be saved, but he can save. He can actually serve as our substitute. We need a God man, a great high priest. And the good news of the gospel is that we have one. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, not who went into an earthly temporary temple, but who went into the heavenly eternal temple, the one to which the temporary temple was, was pointing. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, Jesus, the man, like a real man, historical man encased in flesh. He sweated, he breathed, he bled. He can really represent us. Verse 15 says that in every respect, he's been tempted as we are. He's a real man, experienced real temptation, but he is also Jesus, the son of God. He really is God, God in the flesh so that he has no sin of his own from which he needs to be saved. That's what the rest of verse 15 says. In every respect, he's been tempted as we are yet without sin. He had no sin of his own, so he was free to take on yours and mine. He really can save. Since then, we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast. The Greek literally means cling. Let us cling to our confession. 
our confession that though we substituted ourselves for God, He saves by substituting Himself for us. On the cross, Christ was our substitute sacrifice. He sacrificed Himself for our sins. And the cross was no temporary animal sacrifice. It was an eternally sufficient, once-for-all sacrifice, to which all the temporary sacrifices were pointing. Temporary sacrifices could never solve the problem of sin and the death that it deserved. That's why there were no chairs in the temple. Do you know that? All sorts of furniture God prescribed for the temple area. No chairs. Why? Because there's no reason for a priest to sit down. A, a temporary priest serving in a temporary temple has to constantly offer temporary sacrifices. Hebrews 10 verse 11 says, And every priest stands daily. He doesn't need to sit. He stands daily to service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But, glorious gospel conjunction. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God because it really was finished. No further sacrifices needed. The eternal priest made an eternally sufficient sacrifice, defeating sin and the death that it deserved. Don't believe it? Check the tomb. It's empty. Death defeated, reversed by resurrection. Our great high priest rose from the grave and he entered into the eternal heavenly temple to present his own blood, not the blood of an animal sacrifice, but his own blood as our eternal atonement, turning what should have been a throne of judgment into an eternal place of grace. Shades, do not fear. Draw near. Draw near. That's... That's how verse 16 further defines what it means to hold fast to your confession. It means to draw near, to cling to Christ. No matter what you've said, no matter what you've felt, no matter what you've done. If you're asking this morning, can Christ do anything to help? He's the only one who can. He is the God man, the great high priest. He has the power to help. So do not fear. Draw near because Christ has the power to help. But will he? He may have the power to do so. But will he? Like it's great. But he can help. That might quiet my fears. But will he help? Because if I'm honest, it doesn't really look like it to me. And that's what I find so frustrating. I'm left asking, will Jesus do anything to help? The author of Hebrews answers our second question in verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Our great high priest sympathizes. Sympathao. In Greek words, where our English word comes from, sum, it means with. Pathao, or pathos. It means passion or suffering. 
Sympathio means to suffer with, to feel passion or compassion for. But it actually means even more than that. New Testament scholar William Lane says sympathio extends beyond the sharing of feelings and compassion. It always includes the element of active help. In other words, Christ doesn't just have the power to help. He has the passion to help. He wants to. His heart is drawn to you, specifically in your weakness. We often have, don't have a problem thinking that Christ is for us when everything's going well. Christ must be for me. But this scripture right here tells us it is specifically in our weakness. When we suffer, when we're tempted and we fail and we sin, it is then that Christ is drawn to us. He displays his passion towards us. Do you feel the heartbeat of Christ right here? That's how the Puritan Thomas Goodwin talked about this text. Hebrews 4 and verse 15, Thomas Goodwin says, This text takes our hands and lays them upon Christ's chest and lets us feel how his heart beats and his affections yearn toward us. He feels for you. And not with some kind of remote, detached pity, no, Hebrews tells us that he has this passion because he has been where you are. He's been there too. He's faced what you face. He's felt what you feel. He's able to sympathize with our weaknesses because in every respect, he has been tempted as we are. That's what we've been seeing all throughout our Lenten series, is it not? As we've journeyed with Jesus through the wilderness where he faced temptation for 40 days. We saw that that was just merely a preview to what he would face throughout his entire life as he made his way through the wilderness of this world. He would face constant temptation. Is that not what we've seen in Gethsemane and upon the cross? Shades, Christ knows what it feels like to just want to give up and quit. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He knows what it feels like to just want to give up and quit. He knows the pain of physical suffering and sickness like we've seen in this pandemic. He knows violence and injustice and hate and racism and bigotry. He's, he's known righteous anger against political idolatry done in the name of God. And he doesn't, he doesn't just know the pains of the world out there. He knows the pain of your world in here. He knows loneliness. Isaiah 53 and verse 3 says he is a man who is sorrowful and acquainted with grief. He knows sorrow. He knows grief. He knows loss. He knows betrayal. He knows being mocked. He knows being insulted. He knows every tempting tug that all of that exerts to get you to give up. In fact, he knows all of that with a greater and deeper depth than any of us have ever experienced. He knows suffering deeper. He knows temptation deeper. He knows all of it deeper than anything we have ever felt. I know that because the text tells us that he has been tempted in every respect, yet without sin. Most of us think that means he has experienced less suffering or less temptation than we have. 
It means the exact opposite, that he has experienced it to the full. He has experienced it more. C.S. Lewis, can't get better than him, brilliantly says it this way. He says, you find out the strength of the wind by walking against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. He's the only one who has stood constantly forever against the wind until the end. His endurance means that he has known more of suffering than we know. He's been tempted in every respect so he can sympathize with you in every respect. In other words, Shades, no one knows how you feel like Jesus does. Shades, do you see your frustrations are outpaced by his passion? No, no matter if it seems like Christ is absent amidst everything going on out there in the world and in here in your world, no matter if you're left asking, will Christ do anything to help? The gospel declares not just that he is the only one who can help, but he is the one who will help and he will do it with passion. He loves to do it, longs to do it. He will take every frustration you have ever felt and he will fill it full of forever joy he has guaranteed that gospel good news through the cross and the empty tomb is this not what he did through the cross and the tomb do you not demonstrate his ability to take your frustrations and flip it and fill them with joy? The cross and the empty tomb, he took death and flipped it and brought life out of it. This is his passion. This is what he does. This is what he will do. He's promised he will make all things new. This is why in just a little bit, we're going to adorn this cross in flowers. Because Christ took a place of death and he brought life out of it. This is why Christians still to this day go to graveyards and put flowers on graves. Because we have a hope and an expectation that Christ did not just reverse death here and bring life out of it. He will reverse death everywhere and bring life out of it. He will turn every grave ever into a garden. This is what he does. He turns graves into gardens. He turns mourning to dancing. He turns ashes to beauty. And he turns pandemics into places of praise. He turns injustice to justice. He turns corruption into his kingdom. He turns frustration into fullness. He turns fear to faith. So draw near shades with confidence. Draw near with confidence for he has turned the place that should have been a place of judgment forever and eternally into a place of grace. Confidently draw near because Christ doesn't just have the power to help. It is his passion. Look at the last verse, Hebrews 4 and verse 16. Let us then with confidence, boldness. It means an open unhinderedness. It's most commonly a word used of speech, speaking unhinderedly. Bringing your full and honest, unhindered self. Come. Let us approach. Let us then with confidence draw 
near, that verb is in the present, means it's an ongoing, ongoing, continuous action that is constantly, continually drawn near, confidently, with our full, exposed self, all of our weaknesses, all of our temptations, all of our faults, all of our failures. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive, not judgment, mercy that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Are you filled with fear? Draw near this morning. Draw near, not to the tomb, but to the throne. Because the tomb is empty, the throne is full. It's full of grace. Do not be filled with fear. Draw near and receive mercy. If you think I've I've sinned, I've turned my back on Christ too much, I've failed, I've, what I've said, what I've done, what I've felt, draw near. Here's what you will receive. Mercy, powerfully and passionately poured out on you. Are you filled with frustration? Draw near and find sustaining grace. Right in the midst of everything that's frustrating you, that you feel like is making you want to give up, find grace that will actually sustain you in the midst of that. Draw near and find sustaining grace powerfully and passionately poured out on you. I know it's sustaining grace because verse 16 says that you will find grace to help in time of need. That means in the Greek specific grace for the specific need at that specific moment. What you are going through, what you are facing, He will provide the grace needed to help. He will sustain you right now. He's not absent, doing nothing. He's here, providing everything you need until the day He returns to fully and finally bring every frustration ever to an end. Pandemics over, injustice done corruption killed christ will come to complete the reversal his resurrection began to turn every grave into a garden he is the only one who can and shades the good news of the gospel is he will he will so come shades come and confidently draw near to receive him who is our help come Draw near to Jesus. Amen. Amen. I invite you to come this morning. To draw near in worship. To draw near in prayer. To draw near to the cross. You may have brought flowers with you this morning in just a moment. After I pray, you're invited at any point as we sing and celebrate together to draw near to the cross and adorn it with flowers. If you forgot to bring some, we do have some extras right here. We do ask, we've had plenty of time for everybody to participate. So don't rush and make a mosh pit. Give space for everybody so everybody can participate. But you're invited to draw near to the cross. You're invited to draw near to the table. You have communion supplies when you came in. If you did not get any, there's still more over here at this table you can come and get. But as we worship together, you're invited to receive the bread, Christ's body broken for you, his blood poured out for you powerfully and passionately. You hold in your hands the evidence that he can help and that he has and he will. You're invited at any point during our worship to take communion and
receive it with the people you came with. Or you're invited, if you would like to come and kneel at the table, it is here and you can come and kneel. But you're invited through worship, through the cross, through the table. You're invited to draw near, confidently, boldly to Jesus.